Welcome to Game Changers, the podcast for sales and sales leadership within the investment management industry. I'm your host, John Keevy, and I run a recruiting firm, Career Connections, focused on the industry. You can find and subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Ask your boss how you're doing. Don't wait till the end of the year to get your review. And those who've had difficulty accepting the constructive feedback, I have found they lack self-awareness. And with me, it's not really going to work. Self-awareness is really important. And maybe the only way to really figure it out is by asking your boss, you know, quote unquote, how you're doing. Today, I'm happy to welcome a guest I've worked with for over 20 years. And I've always had a great appreciation for the partnership I have with him, both as a client and as a friend. Joining us today is John McComb, president of Richard Bernstein Advisors, a fast-growing asset manager based in New York with a macroeconomic investment approach. Prior to RBA, John spent 13 years at Cohen & Steers, leading their sales and marketing organization, and prior to that, a number of positions at Merrill Lynch. John has been a leader of high-performing sales organizations that have grown assets significantly while building long-lasting relationships with the advisor communities across the Wirehouse, Independent, and RIA channels. So let's get started with this episode featuring my good friend and distinguished figure in the world of asset management, John McComb. Welcome to the show, John. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it. Hey, so John, you and I know each other for a long time. You're actually, uh, for better or worse, the person that introduced me to this great industry as a recruiter, and I I really appreciate that, and I tell that story all the time. But for benefits of our listeners, let me give you a little bit of uh, background. I'll, I'll uh, I'll tell you the story about how you and I got to know each other. So... You and I met when I was working for a small web development firm called ePresence back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And you were, at the time, head of sales and marketing at Cohen & Steers. And my firm worked on your second generation website, if I believe, uh, if if I recall correctly, for Cohen & Steers. And it was a great project. Um, You were a very involved client. And uh, while the process had had its ups and downs, I think the end result was uh, very positive for both sides. And uh, that's how you and I got to know each other. Um, And then a few years went by, I decided to go out on my own as a recruiter. And initially, I was recruiting in the tech space. And you very generously asked me to help at a time when I believe Conan Steers was just going through a a great stage of growth. And um, I, I really knew nothing about the investment management business. But you had invited me in and helped uh, allowed me to help you uh, hire your or recruit and hire your first generation or your second generation of wholesalers, internals, externals, and marketing people, I believe. And that was a great a great uh, exposure for me with the business. And uh, as many recruiters, yeah, yeah, as it happens with many recruiters, my niche kind of grew organically from there, and I got a lot of referrals, and ultimately ended up. Um, focused on this space. So, uh, of course, I want to thank you for that. Um, and, and again, that's, that's how we got to know each other. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, when you think about it, I mean, just to talk that through a little bit, it's a, it's a lesson in and of itself in terms of relationships. I mean, you went from a totally different industry, web design, as I recall, you were a sales guy. Um, and then you brought in the nuts and bolts guys, um, we got to know each other. We had, you know, frank discussions around, you know, what we want from the website, et cetera. But I think the key um, learning experience from it is, um, you know, never burn a bridge. You don't know where your whole life is going to go. Uh, you you move to that. 
uh, and and I owe you thanks too. I mean, first of all, you've been a great uh, partner to me when we were at Cohen and Steers, and now at Richard Bernstein Advisors, where I'm the president. Um, and we could talk about that at some point, but I mean, I think you've placed 13 or 14 people at our company, and mm-hmm. you know, the minor company has like 35 people. So uh, it's it's a you know, a tribute to you in terms of the business that you built, um, you know, their career connections and, uh, and also I think a, a lesson in, um, relationship building. Yeah, absolutely. John. And, uh, you know, I, I think one goes through their professional lives as least I do. And, uh, unfortunately you can count, you know, lifelong clients or career long clients on one or two hands and you're one of them. Um, so it's been a great relationship and very, very, you've been always very good to me um, and treating me with a lot of respect and partnership, which I really appreciate. Yeah. Well, again, I think, you know, you and I um, have a relationship that you know, is, is frank. I mean, you, you've learned um, what I like in, in people, you know, mm-hmm. which again is your business. Um, you, I think, the great thing about working with a recruiter, you know, honestly, I'm not trying to give you a full commercial here, but it, um, if you work with one person or a couple and they mm-hmm. really know both your style and what the firm's culture is, and they right. can actually pitch the firm as well as maybe I could, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it saves me an awful lot of uh, heavy lifting. And right. I think that ultimately that's really, you know, key uh to to success in in what you do in in placing folks with us uh and that's what i found with you so again thank you for that and it's been a you know great partnership as we said thank you john really appreciate it so anyway john i i don't think you and i have ever spoken about your early days and what and what i like to do in this podcast is do a little bit of conversation around what shapes somebody you know in their childhood or in their early adulthood around what led them to this business. So I was curious. Now you, you grew up in, you grew up in Westchester County, John. Yeah. I grew up in a little town called Tuckahoe, New York, a small little uh, town in lower Westchester near Bronxville, East Chester. I think actually the town, um, its history was, uh, it was, you know, the sort of the working class people taking care of the folks uh, in Bronxville, but great little town, grew up in a two bedroom apartment. Uh, it was quite nice. Mm, great. And what was your family like? Yeah. So my, my upbringing, you know, I, I talk about this with, with folks, you know, I had two older brothers. They're like, you know, six to eight years older than me. Um, my mom, uh, my parents are divorced. So it was a single family situation. My mom's a great lady, but, you know, didn't have it too easy in the sixties in the sense that she was divorced. That was kind of early on, you know, people get divorced now it's kind of normal, but back then it was not that easy for her. Um, so she did a great job with us, but at the same time, my brothers, uh, who are great now, uh, one actually passed, uh, recently, but, um, they went through some tough times, uh, in, in terms of drugs, you know, it was kind of the late sixties. Um, and, uh, it had an effect on me, um, in the sense that I did watch them and these are serious, uh, drugs too, not to get way, way into it, but, um, you know, so they had to deal with that. I had to deal with that. Obviously, you know, didn't have my, my dad around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so interestingly for me, you know, I, I tell people you could, it can either be, you know, a, a, a stick or 
in terms of you know hurting you or it could be something that you're gonna you know use in a positive way i guess and for me i was determined to not really go down that path um if you will so I really was kind of driven to to not go in a, you know down a route of uh, you know either obviously drugs or anything like it, and instead sure. it inspired me to really um, you know want to go to college. So in a, in a weird way, I tell people all the time that um, I wouldn't really want folks you know to have to go through some of the things I went through at a, in when right. I was 10, 12 years old. But uh, in an odd way, it, it shaped me. And really drove me to um, to succeed, I guess. And and so um, I think that it it had to happen that way. I guess is what it comes down to. Yeah, it's odd the things that shape us as uh, as children. I guess you had the luck of being the youngest youngest son and kind of observing and you know observing the downside of the path they went down. Yeah, I was kind of lucky. I was like six years away from my my middle brother, and that was. That was enough space. I mean, you know, right. really enough space to get beat up, uh, as you as you know, if you have brothers. But <laughs> at the same time, uh, enough space to, you know, stay removed, I guess, from that. And luckily, as I said, they went on to to uh, to be fine. And it took a while, but you know, right. at the same time, it really was, um, you know, not that easy. I think it's interesting now, John. I mean, people look at me and the success I've had. And um, I don't think they really realize where I came from. They either think I always, you know, had this success or this was the look I always threw off. And, you right. know, I was like everybody else. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I didn't have a lot of direction back then. And a lot of it I had to find out myself. And, you know, yeah. that's just the way it was. Yeah, I think, and, and I think there's a popular perception among folks that look at the financial services industry from the outside. They think everybody has, you know, an in or somebody introduced them or a dad or an uncle that kind of blazed the trail. And, and there are certainly people like that. But, you know, at least in this podcast, I've interviewed a lot of people that have come from, uh, you know, very different circumstances and kind of made it, made it, the, made it their own way. Yeah, I try to tell people all the time, you know, that most people, uh, you know, we just had four interns at Richard Bernstein Advisors come through. And again, when when you start and you start talking to people that are at the company, um, nine times out of 10, they did not start uh, doing what they were doing. I don't know where you started, whether it was mm -hmm. at, you know, the e-presence or it was somewhere else before that. But, yeah. you know, even if you were telling your story, it wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, I went right into recruiting. You know, that's oh, yeah, no. very, very unusual. And it takes yeah. time. It is right. interesting you mentioned uh, an uncle. I did have, uh, you know, so going back to my early days, you know, my, my mom used to uh, ship me out, I like to say, out mm -hmm. to Wilmette, Illinois uh, mm -hmm. in the summers because her sister lived in Wilmette. And if you know anything about Wilmette, Kenilworth, Evanston. It's a really beautiful yeah. area north of Chicago. Um, and that was kind of my, you know, oasis, if you will. And my uncle worked at Parade Magazine and had, they had a beautiful house on a, you know, tree-lined street. And I think that was the one time I kind of looked and said, you know, this is where I want to get to, you know, as opposed to the two-bedroom apartment. Uh, so it inspired me, believe it or not, just going to that town on a yearly basis in the summer, hanging with my cousins. And, you know, I, I kind of had something to uh, to look at and say, this is where I want to be. Right. 
Right. Interesting. That's great. Um, so what about your early education, John? Did you go to did you go to high school in Tuckahoe or nearby? Yeah, so a key a key for me, um, I went to Iona Prep, Iona Preparatory School. Okay. You know, I, I gave the commencement speech at Iona Prep, I think about two years ago, and um it really was an important part of me, you know, uh, you know, moving and figuring out where I wanted to be. Uh, and the reason is, is it, it said college to me and I, nobody in my family had gone to college. I really, you know, that was really what I wanted to do. And so the idea of going to a preparatory school, I thought was going to set me up. And the, the good news is there, you know, it's a, it's a Christian brother, Catholic school, um, it was pretty disciplined, as you would imagine, you know, going back right. to, uh, to those days. But it set me on a path of finding friends with similar goals, knowing that I could do the work uh, there and uh, and then was going to be able to to get into a good college. And so I met uh, lifelong friends who I still have now. They've all gone on to great things. And uh, what I what I said in my speech there was it was really a foundation for me. You know, it, it, it set a foundation, um, of like a house and, you know, it, right. you have, to have a great foundation, you know, obviously to, to build a house on top of it. And I own a prep was really that for me. Um, in fact, today I should mention, it was a lot of money, you know, for my mom. Uh, she mm -hmm. was a secretary, uh, at a hospital, a local hospital, Lawrence Hospital in Bronxville, didn't really make a lot of money. I think Iona Prep was about a thousand dollars a year, all the way back in the seventies, which was quite a lot for her. Um, so I have a I have a scholarship in my mom's name now uh, for single parent uh, students. So you have to right. come from a single you know parent household. Uh, I really appreciated what my mom did there to, to, to have me, you know, set on that path. And uh, the scholarship is an endowed scholarship. I get letters from, you know, kids every year. But, um, you know, sometimes you kind of need that. My mom said and got me to do that. And Iona Prep was really, you know, kind of a key thing for me going forward to then get on and go on to Fordham University. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. Um, yeah, it's amazing when you think back to the parents that made huge sacrifices to make your life possible. I mean, my dad was a New York City fireman, and my mom was a secretary, and he put five kids through Catholic grammar school, high school, and Fordham. Aside from, aside from myself, all my siblings went to Fordham, so it's interesting. Um, you know, and, and it, it, I look back with that with amazement as to how. I don't know how he pulled it off, but it's uh, it's crazy. It's a tribute to your dad, and uh, you know, you, I know you've talked to me about Fordham. I know you got a bunch of brothers, or you know, yeah. you that went there. Not right. you, as I recall. But, you no, know. I went. To, I went the public school route. I had to get a little bit further away, but uh, I went up, up north. But um, where did you go again? I went to SUNY Albany, so I, I I went up there with the idea of selling business and wanted to be a little bit further away from my. Uh, I wanted to get out of the New York City area, which you know ultimately I think it was the right choice for me. But I I did spend a lot of time down at Fordham. In fact, I, I can trace my first job out of college to Fordham. Um, I found a, a contact there and ultimately it led to my first job. So, and, yeah. and all my uh, siblings had very positive experiences there. So, so it's, it's funny, you know, when I went to Fordham, um, and that's where, you know, I, I obviously went to college. Um, but I remember going to that campus and um, it just, if you've ever been to Fordham University, it's really, you know, kind of old school, beautiful buildings, Keating Hall and the like. And, uh, same kind of thing of my whole inspiration thing. It was like, it just, 
you know, it said college to me, right? It sure. looked it, it just had everything about it. And, um, you know, when I went there, I felt like, wow, now, believe it or not, I teach a class there mm-hmm. um, called The Ground Floor. I've been an adjunct professor at Fordham uh, for 10 years. And I tell people in my first class, in fact, my first class is coming up uh, the day after Labor Day. Mm-hmm. Um, if anybody had told me, again, you heard a little bit about my background growing up right there. Um, not a lot of direction, didn't really know. So if anybody had told me that I'd be teaching at Fordham University as I graduated uh, back in 1982, I, I just, there's no way. I would have just told them, <laughs> not even remotely on my radar. I wouldn't even understand that. Nothing. Right. Um, but indeed, you know, life can take different turns. And, you know, here I am, you know, uh, an adjunct professor at Fordham, hopefully giving back, you know, one of my lines, yeah. learn, earn, and return. Right. So I learned, I earned, and now, you know, I'm trying to give back uh, as an adjunct there. Yeah, that's awesome. So you graduate from Fordham and you, you're, you're at Fordham as a senior. How, what are you thinking about in terms of career? I mean, are you just, do you have any plan in terms of what you wanted to do or did you end up, I know, I know you ultimately ended up working at Merrill Lynch. How, how did that come about? Yeah. So in 1982, it's very interesting. Um, the big employer back then, if anybody, you know, is actually listening that, you know, graduated <laughs> was IBM. I mean, okay. Everybody wanted to work at IBM. They had a, they had a, uh, like a campus up in Pekin or something. It was like, you know, they had a country club kind of atmosphere and it was like a lifelong go to work at IBM. Um, and you're going to be, you know, you know, fit set for life kind of thing. Um, so I tried to get a job at IBM. So the answer to your question is no, I didn't know anything about the investment industry. My sole thing back then was to get a job at a company that people would recognize the name. Like if I heard of it, I would have thought like, you know, this is great. Could have been IBM. Um, I remember interviewing with Philip Morris, which is the, you know, the tobacco company, but that was a big company back in the day and and I could get there. Um, So I really didn't, you know, there was no interning back then. I worked, I I should mention, I paid for college myself um, by working in a hospital kitchen, you know, throughout that time. And and back then you could do it. So I don't want to, you know, it was like five grand a year and you could actually make the money to do it, but it's still Right. It was a sacrifice, and I, I still had to do it. But sure. uh, my father-in-law, uh, who was not my father-in-law at the time, but is now, um, he actually set me up with a recruiter, believe it or not, John, hmm. who helped me get an interview <laughs> at um, Merrill Lynch. And it was in okay. the accounting area of Merrill. And again, same thing as things come together. I remember the guys that I interviewed with. Uh, one went to a rival Catholic school, um, Stepanak, I think. Uh, so he kind of already kind of knew maybe what I was about. And, um, mm-hmm. and basically I got that job, you know, in November of uh, 82, it actually took me quite a while to get my first job out of school. Uh, mm-hmm. and I was off to the races at Merrill. Wow. That's great. So you're in accounting up in purchase or are you, are, are you in the city at this point? No, it was downtown. It was in there. Okay. Their headquarters, um, 165 uh, Broadway or good old One Liberty Plaza was mm. OLP, they called it at Merrill back in the day. So I right. went to work 
in bank reconciliations, believe it or not. Um, which uh, I, I'm sorry to all the accounting folks out there, but um, wasn't, you know, like, oh my God, this is what I want to do forever kind of thing. But right. uh, it got me a foot in the door. So the, the good news here is that like, I didn't know anything about Merrill Lynch. I didn't know anything about investment management. So right. I, you know, the idea that I could go in and be a sales trader or whatever was the hot dot at the time, um, I needed that accounting work. And over six years within the accounting world, I actually went on and got a, a master's in accounting from Pace because I thought I was going to stay in accounting. Uh, mm-hmm. But it did allow me to navigate and learn the business. I got to learn what you know Merrill Lynch was about, the different areas, right. uh, and that was really you know kind of good. But I did I didn't love it. Yeah. And I I, I kind of knew too that there were people better at it, you know than I, than I was. They loved numbers. Uh, and I kind of used it as a means to an end, I guess. But um, I knew somewhere along the line I didn't want to uh, stay in accounting. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it doesn't seem, at least to me as an outsider, that that the opportunity to move laterally within a big company exists as much as it used to. Where it, now, how many jobs did you have at Merrill over the course of the fourteen? years that you were there? I had quite a few even within the accounting uh, world. I mean, I know I, I went to accounts payable and, and accounting services, they called called it. Uh, and even back then, John, it wasn't super easy to move. Um, okay. You know, the good thing for me is I ultimately was on a, 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 a little budget staff of uh, a guy who ran all of sales and marketing. And so he had all the product areas that mm-hmm. reported to him. And this is kind of where the bell and the light bulb went off for me. I was meeting those people. Right. And they were kind of dynamic and they were doing cool things and they were they were they were traveling and setting up these big, you know, client events for uh, financial advisors at Merrill Lynch. And I was like, you know, that just sounds like something that I would really love to do. Right. right? But I do try to tell people, you know, because again, people have a perception now. I was as unsure of anybody as anybody at the time that I could be successful at that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I took a leap to say that I should get into the sales, you know, sort of area, if you will. Right. Um, so I went into this guy at the time and, uh, ultimately convinced him to allow me to go down and talk to a guy in equity marketing, um, a guy named Jack Armstrong, kind of a legendary guy at Merrill Lynch. He actually was uh, related to a guy that I went to Iona Prep with. So that sort of helped me at least get to meet him. Mm -hmm. He ultimately helped me move into the sort of equity and marketing area where I went to the syndicate area of Merrill Lynch, which is IPOs, new issues. There is really where I think uh, I blossomed, if you will. Wow, that's great. So you you worked your interpersonal relationships and were able to, I mean, that's obviously key to be, um, you know, talk to folks about what you want to do and then pursue them internally. I mean, that's part of the game, especially when you're with a big company. You've got to be forward with what you want. Go for it. I totally agree. You know, like I, I'm a big believer in, in asking, um, you know, people, if you can go down and have coffee with them or meet them and be like, right. yeah. And I was always doing that, always trying right. to figure out where I was going to be, what I was going to do next, and, you know, look for advice. You know, it was interesting. One quick story. I remember Jack Armstrong, um, 
hired me down into that equity marketing area, sort of, you know, marketing out IPOs where I'd be on the phone all day with, with financial advisors. And then a research related job came up and um, it was a better job. It was like a VP job. There were two people reporting to me, but Mm -hmm. it's going to keep me in the numbers world. And, you know, I sat there going, I really want to be on the sales side. And it was a really tough decision. And I would say a lot of people might not have made the decision. Um, and they would have gone with that research job, but I, I went with my gut. I went mm-hmm. with actually the lower level job and because it sued who I, who I was, it, it really helped me, you know, go from there. Right. Right. Now, I guess knowing yourself and knowing what you're good at and, uh, taking it and taking calculated risks within yeah. your, within your career. Totally. Very good. Very good. So you, you ultimately in a sales role at Merrill, and how many years did you approximately did you do that? Yes, yeah, so I was at Merrill Lynch for fourteen years. I, I think about six were in uh, the accounting, you know, world, and then the other eight or nine, whatever it was, coming out to eight uh, mm-hmm. was in you know marketing. So and sales. So I was on the phone all day with advisors, right? Um, and this is another thing that I talk about is just it, I've learned that you know one of the one of my lanes, I, I think it, it's good to try to find a lane, like you found your lane sure. with executive recruiting, um, is the the advisor for me. I was on the phone with the advisor all day. I just I just clicked with uh, the financial advisor, you know, uh, their mentality, what they were looking mm-hmm. for product-wise. And that is something I've pursued my whole career. In fact... That's one of the reasons I'm at Richard Bernstein Advisors now is because he was the chief investment strategist at Merrill Lynch. His right. link was the financial advisor. So right. I, I've kind of stuck to that. Um, and it's really it's really helped me quite a bit. Yeah, that's that's great. So how did you now you're you're at Merrill Lynch, Mother Merrill, as they say, and you're I'm sure you're very comfortable. You've got a whole career possibly mapped out in front of you, but an opportunity at what was then a small firm, Cohen and Sears, presents itself. How did you get to know those uh, Marty Cohen and Bob Steers, and how did you ultimately end up uh, taking a chance with that opportunity? Yeah, I'm thinking back in all these kind of cool stories, if you will. It's like when you were at Merrill on the trading floor and I sat on the trading floor, <clears throat> um, everybody wanted to be in sales and trading or research mm-hmm. sales, they called it. <clears throat> and... Um, I did too, because that was like the sexy dot. And um, I couldn't really get into it. You know, I tried, you know, I never got an opportunity through the people that I was talking to. So I ended up kind of focusing on closed end mutual funds, which were something that not everybody was like dying to do. They like to do the, the, the cool IPO, Callaway Golf or whatever was coming public at the time. Right. But we used to do closed end funds, which were IPOs where you're raising money for an investment management firm. So there I got exposed to the investment management space. Mm-hmm. I went to Russia with uh, Mark Mobius from, from Templeton. <clears throat> I, uh, I did a, a, a sole series of closed end funds and raised a lot of money. And I I did one for uh, Cohen and Steers, you know, okay. uh, Bob Steers and Marty Cohen. We raised uh, some money, I think, back in, 
I think it was 19, like 92 or something like that. So mm-hmm. he gave me exposure to investment management. And then eventually they came to me and said, hey, we want to grow at Merrill. <clears throat> you know Merrill Lynch. Would you be interested in joining the firm? And, mm-hmm. um, and you know, again, that was a you know an important moment, I guess, in my career. To your point, I was doing really well at Merrill. Um, I was actually trying to be a branch manager even at the time uh, after you know being on the, the trading desk. Right. And Cohen and Steers was a small little firm, two and a half, three billion at the time. I think I was the seventeenth employee, mm-hmm. but I had got to know the investment management space quite a bit. I understood right. you know what it was about. I knew it was lucrative. I knew you could if you could make an impact. Um, then um, it it might turn out to be great. So I took that calculated risk. Many people, you know, looked at me and thought, and in fact, I always tell the story. My mom was like, you're going, you're leaving Merrill Lynch to go to Cohen and Steve. I mean, I've never heard of them, you know, but she didn't understand that. And um, I went over and helped Cohen and Steers grow from two and a half, three billion to 35, um, you know, built a team. Um, we went public when I was there and, um, you know, it was really, uh, it really turned out to be a, a great you know thing for me to do. So now one point I would make is REITs did really well. So they specialize in REITs among other mm-hmm. things. And, um, I do like to tell people that whether it's luck or timing, um, you know, I could have gone over there and been the best sales guy in the world. And if REITs went down for the next 10 years, you know, so you, you need a little bit of um, luck, timing, whatever you want to call it for, for it all to work out. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I think the younger generation might not really identify the gravity of leaving a company like Merrill Lynch. I, I had a similar experience. I worked at AT&T, not, not as long as you did at Merrill, but when I left AT&T, my parents were like, what the heck are you doing? It was like leaving a government job, you know, very, very secure. Everything was mapped out for me. And I went to a small company um, and joined a small consulting firm and they were shocked. And uh, it ultimately was the best decision I ever made. But at the time it was risky. And today, you know, it's rare when I come across somebody that spent you know, 20, 30 years at the same firm. It's just, it just doesn't happen so much anymore. But again, going back to what we talked about earlier, I mean, you started at AT AT&T and now you're an executive recruiter and you're listening and you don't know what you want to be. Right. Um, It takes time, you know, so I know you spent close to 13 years at Cohen and Steers. Um, How, how much growth did they experience during that time period in terms of AUM, for example? Yeah. I mean, I think I mentioned before we went from, when I was there, they went from two and a half, a billion or so to about 35 billion went public in 04. I was, you know, one of the top folks there. Um, you know, overall, um, great growth. I mean, I think that has been something that's been a calling card for me. I mean, I've, I, I did, I think $70 billion worth of closed end funds when I was at Merrill. I, ra- I helped raise money, obviously at, at Cohen and Steers successfully right back through Merrill Lynch and the others. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I've kind of done the same thing at, uh, Richard Bernstein advisors were about 16 and a half billion. Yeah. Um, so I, I like to grow businesses in particular, you know, smaller investment management companies. Conan Steers, by the way, has gone to, you know, even bigger things. So sure. Bless. Yeah. So John, do you think, you know, in looking at yourself, you worked at Merrill, very big company. It sounds like you 
you navigated it fairly well and were able to move laterally and horizontally within the firm. Um, do you think you're more suited, your, your personality and the way you're wired, do you think you're more suited for a smaller outfit and more of an entrepreneurial type of setting? Yeah, that's a good question, John. Uh, you know, to your point earlier, I mean, I do think if you can go work at a big company initially, um, maybe it's harder to move around now. I don't know. But it does give you exposure to so many different things. Um, so you can kind of see what others do, um, where you might want to go. So I, I don't think there's anything you know bad about it. Um, however, I have learned that the smaller firm, I mean, you, uh, even the people at our company, I mean, the interns are going to watch seeing, you know, Rich Bernstein on CNBC, and then he's going to walk out and talk to him. I mean, that right. doesn't happen everywhere. True. And, um, I'm all about impact. I mean, uh, people listening who work for me, I talk about how do you make an impact at a company? You know, uh, I come in every day trying to grow revenue at Richard Bernstein Advisors, and I think about it, you know, all the time. Um, so the smaller place really allows individuals to make that impact. Now, at the same time, you can't hide. So, you know, it, it's a, you know, catch 22, if you will. So if you think you can really add value and make that impact, uh, it's a great place to be. I, I think uh, for me, um, smaller is better, but I, I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, working at some of the big shops and, and ultimately trying to figure out if you want to be client facing, you want to be analytical, which again yeah. is a big part of what I talk about too with, uh, you know, some of the new people. Absolutely. So John, you and I know each other really well as a, uh, you, you, I know, as a sales manager and a, and a manager of marketing folks as well. Um, let's talk a little bit about your hiring style, if we could. So I was curious to know, what, what kind of questions do you ask, regardless of the job and regardless of you know, the level of person you're dealing with, what kind of questions would you ask that are most that shed the most light for you in terms of revealing somebody's character or culture fit, things, the, the, the big questions? Yeah, I mean, the first, the first, interestingly... You know, uh, the first question I often ask people uh, just to make them, you know, comfortable is is tell me about yourself, right? I mean, that's just the easy one. And I try to tell the people at Fordham now and, and even younger people, like, you know, you need a two or three minute speech around that. I mean, an interview is a is a sale that you're trying to make. And, uh, and, and don't take that for granted and make sure that everybody, that you're covering everything you want to know, because that's, you know, kind of a layup um, you know, question, if you will. But when I'm interviewing for more experienced people, what I usually ask them is tell me what you're good at. Tell me what you're good at. And what I am looking for there is if somebody is going to be on the investment committee, nine times out of 10, I know what they're going to say. Math, numbers, they're analytical, they're detailed oriented, uh, things like that. And that's actually what I'm looking for. And then I'll ask him, well, can you demonstrate that for me? On the sales side, you know, it's more about um, relationships. Um, I have a lot of relationships out there. Um, I'm, I'm a great presenter. I can speak. I like being client facing, which again, going back to younger people that may be listening, you know, it's hard to figure out what you want to do and 
you and I are talking about how we both navigated around a, a series of things from accounting to, to sales or where you were at AT&T to, to where you are now. But one of the things you can start to do is, do you want to be client facing? Mm-hmm. Want to be more of a numbers and in the, you know, kind of not the background, if you will, there's nothing wrong with, with doing that, but maybe less upfront. Uh, I think that's a, a key thing you can start to figure out um, early on, if you will. And by the way, you can learn to be more client-facing. It doesn't mean you should obviously... I, I didn't sit there back in my accounting days at Merrill saying, I'm going to be great with advisors. I mean, you, you have to go and try to do it. But those two things are, um, I think, important to figure out. When I got into the client-facing side of things is kind of where my my you know, career, uh, you know, really uh, accelerated. So uh, I think that's a good lesson for folks. Absolutely. So John, I, I, I've been the beneficiary of, of a lot of your feedback. One, one of the great things about you as a client is you're very um, generous with the feedback and, and blunt with the feedback, which is greatly appreciated about the candidates I've had in front of you over the years. So some of the things that I've taken away from listening to you and, and I've kind of shaped my recruiting a little bit is things like, for example, when a sales candidate comes in to meet, um, they better know their own backgrounds and, and be able to speak in detail about, for instance, their sales numbers and the and the, the, the state of the territory that they cover and what, what history is. And surprisingly, there are a fair amount of people that will be underprepared in that area and they'll talk in generalities or they'll have to rack their brain around numbers. And uh, that's a huge red flag for you. I know that. I, I know that from experience. And, I, and I've actually had to do quite a bit of coaching um, with candidates just in general about sharpening that up when I ask them the same questions in, in like a screen type of setting. So appreciate that. You know, salespeople are salespeople. And believe me, I, I've got them all working for me and some are probably listening. Um, and I, I feel like leading them is a little bit like being a coach. You got to know which ones to push and which ones to pull, which ones to pat on the back and which ones to, you know, maybe, uh, you know, give the stick to, if you will, but right. not in a, a real way. Uh, but I, but I think, you know, sometimes when you delve in up to those questions that you're saying, you know, the really good salespeople that I, that I've seen, I mean, they got that down, you know, they're like, I'm third. Here's, you know, who's your, who's your number one client? Well, that's Merrill Lynch and here's how I'm doing it. And here are some people. And if ultimately you're not showing me that, then I'm, I'm, I'm questioning, you know, just what's on paper versus what's real. Sure. Absolutely. Um, also being very well researched about the firm that you're there to interview in front of. Um, and I, and I, you know, I, I think if you were representing BlackRock, there might be an assumption that everybody knows BlackRock. But when you're interviewing for in front of a firm that has 10 million or less under management, they may not be widely known. And uh, right now, there's no excuses. I mean, everything is online, right? So, you know, with, with an hour worth of effort, you could probably be pretty prepared to interview with anybody, but a lot of people don't make that effort. So, and I know that that was always a, a very important thing for you. There's so many little things, John, I mean, and you know this too, and uh, it's it's a big part of our intern program. I mean, just if somebody comes in to the office and let's say they're interviewing with me and if you go to their, you know, RBA website, rbadvisors.com, I mean, there we have insights. We are putting out reports on what we think is going on in the market. And 
there is nothing cooler. And I tell this to interns or experienced people with somebody saying, Hey, I just read your latest insight and I was intrigued by X. Like that simple thing um, is, is not, you know, it's not a game changer, but it certainly is like, Oh, okay. This, you know, it goes back to thank you notes and, you know, tell people when they're writing a thank you, I mean, keep in mind that those thank you notes are probably going to be um, copied or forwarded around to the people that you interviewed with. So one, make sure you thank everybody that you met because we've had people that don't do that. And then the one person's like, how come I didn't get one? Secondly, try to come up with something you talked about in that meeting or interview with the one individual that you could actually reference on your thank you. Don't make it generic because when you forward the generic one, it's like, you know, this person really didn't take the time to to do that. And how much more time can that take somebody? A minute or something oh, like absolutely. that? So absolutely. So there, there's little things that people can do that I don't think um, everybody appreciates until they get in the workforce. <clears throat> and then all of a sudden it's like, wow, that, that little thing really does make a difference. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you, you introduced me to the whole concept of seriousness around thank you notes. I wrote LinkedIn posts about it. I wrote prep docs about it that I put into a PDF and I share with every candidate. Um, and, and I really preach about it. And not everybody listens. And it's still, I have to remind very senior people that it's important to send uh, thank you emails or thank you notes. But um, funny story about thank you notes. Um, I had a candidate interviewing at Alliance Bernstein years ago, and he went through the entire process, did very well. He ultimately sent a thank you note from his phone to the head of distribution, top, top person that he had interviewed with. And the, the phone itself had done an autocorrect thing, met, you know, completely mangled the note. He sent it off in a horrible state. And they were, they were about to make him an offer, and they, they didn't do that. They said, all right, so if you want, if you want this job, you've got to come back and do the entire interview process again from start to finish, do all of the mock sales sales presentations, go through a couple of days again of the entire process and then do it and then do the thank you note correctly. And he ultimately did. He went in there and did very well. He ended up being a great hire. But um, it, it's amazing that just that little thing screwed him up. You've got you know, some of the best stories around uh, hires, both uh, good and bad, I guess. So, but that's, you know, it's a good example. I mean, uh, I actually know recently uh, on the the interns, we had four interns, um, two from Fordham, one from Hamilton, where Rich went, and one from Spelman College, historically black college in Atlanta. And, um, you know, a couple of the people we interviewed, going that was a true story. Like somebody did not uh, thank you, everybody. And that was basically the difference. I mean, you know, the, the differences between, you know, some of the interns are, are kind of slight. And if uh, somebody feels slighted, so to speak, you know, some may not get it. Another funny story is um, you and I working together back when you were at Conan Steers. And uh, I presented, I, I believe it was a head of marketing candidate. And he was coming from a big firm with a somewhat different culture, a little bit looser. And, th and given that this was like the early 2000s, so it was a different time than it is today in terms of corporate presentation and, and how you came to work. It was a much more formal environment. And, and Conan Steers, if I recall correctly, it was suit and ties and for, for men anyway. Um, and this gentleman, despite my coaching him to wear a tie to the interview, he ultimately refused to do that, showed up, 
And, you know, while on paper and even some of the things he was saying, he ended up, you know, he would have been a great candidate for, aside from that one thing, he, uh, you know, he, he bombed the interview for that very reason. And it was, again, that probably wouldn't happen today because it's a different time. But back then, just showing that you weren't coachable in that very silly area of your life, you know, derailed his chances to get that job. And he and I, I've stayed in touch with this guy and we, we've, we talked about it occasionally and he, we laugh about it now, but he, he admits he was wrong. So it was funny, like, uh, just not, just not being coachable in like the slightest way. The coachability, you know, we were talking a little bit about, you know, I've managed a lot of people and I manage a lot of salespeople. There's, there's a couple of things I'd say are, that are, are important. And you were mentioning me as being blunt. And I know you probably talked talk to a few people. Like, I like to think that I'm, I'm very fair and I'm very transparent with people. And I try mm-hmm. to um, approach them in a way that, um, I, I don't know if it happens everywhere in business where sometimes people are afraid to tell people what they constructively need to do better to right. succeed. And and I've been fortunate in that. I think that if you talk to people that really um, we we had this dialogue about what they can do better. And then when they applied that, even if I, they don't work for me anymore, it's turned out to be really good. So I do think I'm good at... Um, you know, just assessing people and again, going back to that push or pull. And then you have to be transparent. You have to be willing to, you know, get in the weeds a little bit about what they can do. Um, and for those who are not coachable, um, and I, I think I use the word self-awareness a lot, mm-hmm. you know, you have to have a self-awareness as to how you're doing, you know, right. uh, the old mayor, Ed Koch of New York years ago, used to go around saying, how am I doing? I actually don't think it's a bad idea for people in business. Ask your boss how you're doing, you know, like not, don't wait till the end of the year to get your review. Um, and those who've had difficulty accepting the constructive feedback, I have found they just do, they lack self-awareness. And with me, um, it's not really going to work. Um, so self-awareness is really important. And maybe the only way to really figure it out is by asking your boss, you know, quote unquote, how you're doing. So aside from like coachability, self-awareness, John, what, in terms of the salespeople you've hired and observed over the years, what do you think are the the key traits of, of some of the best people you've had, you know, like if you, if you know financial advisors at all, and, and those aren't the salespeople that we're talking about here, mine are really portfolio specialists, wholesalers who, who go and talk to the advisor. But I did learn by being in the Rockefeller center office of Merrill Lynch when I was trying to be a branch manager many years ago, that, um, the advisor comes in all shapes and forms. Some are quiet, some are outgoing, some are cerebral, um, uh, some are salesy and it's amazing because they, they all, you know, get to the end game, if you will. I think when it comes to the, um, wholesaler or portfolio specialists or the folks that are calling on, uh, advisors at Merrill, UBS, Morgan Stanley, you know, like I, I know within a very short amount of time, um, who's going to do pretty well when they come into my office. So, um, they definitely have usually have, you know, larger personalities. I mean, even the interns that were there, um, we do a Friday call every week at Richard Bernstein advisors and, you know, they can just 
tell because they just love talking and they love you know telling you about what they're doing and the things. So being likable uh, is really key. Each one of them, we we talk about this, and this is the hardest thing is you have to have some kind of secret sauce in what you're doing. I mean, you it doesn't mean you need to be the best presenter, but you either work angles or you work harder than most, or you're a good listener and you immediately come back. So it's kind of like smelling blood in the water and then they find a little opening and they know how to go after that opening. And that skill is very tough to teach. I mean, if Nick Murray wrote a book on how to be a wholesaler a long time ago, and you know, I can give that book out to anybody, and that's not going to make you a wholesaler, you know, a successful guy. You need to figure out what your secret sauce is. Sure. And that that does take time. Mm-hmm. Um, my best folks want to be number one. Doesn't mean everybody wants to be, but the the ones and the the sales data comes out every day, and they're like. I need to be one, two, or three, or whatever the number is, and they're driven to be there, and they're going to do that. And the same thing, there are all kind of personalities. And, you know, my two top guys, um, you know, they go at it differently, but they're they're both they have these traits. And the last thing I'd say is same thing with the advisor. By the way, is they are driven somewhat by money. I was driven by money when I came out of the business uh, or came out of college. You know, um, I wanted you know, to, to create wealth. And the one thing I'd say for people listening, investment management, um, or, you know, broker dealers, I mean, there's, there's great jobs, marketing, sales can be compliance. And, and I, I think that, uh, that they also can be quite lucrative. So anyway, money does drive the wholesalers, uh, uh, the ones that are really good. Absolutely. So highly competitive, money driven and finding their style and honing their 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 unique style in the way that they're going to be successful. Yeah, and I'm sure that you even in your job. I mean, how many people have you placed at Richard Burns the advisor? You probably know. I think about 13 if I'm correct. Like that's insane yeah. when you think about it. Yeah. So, um John does a great job. I mean, I'm just, you know, for for people listening out there, obviously I wouldn't be you know, both doing this but using him um to that degree and I I'm sure that you've honed your own style of oh, yeah. uh, presenting your company and you and and everything else. But for those listening, uh, thirteen—that's a third of our our company, roughly. Um, and um, I work with another recruiter that's that's placed some too, Blair Lewis. And um, you know, I I tend to like to partner with people, as I mentioned earlier on the the podcast, so that <clears throat> they know who I am, they know what I'm looking for, they understand the firm. And to me, it makes it a lot easier. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, and yeah, I mean, competitiveness is definitely, I, I agree, a highly important aspect of any sales job or salesperson, any successful salesperson. I always am tracking my competitors and interested to know what they're getting that I'm not getting. And, you know, you have to be okay with that to some extent. You can't get all the business, but it certainly drives you when you see more successful people than you and it gives you a target to shoot at. So absolutely. Um John, if I could just talk to you a little bit about your management style, because everybody has their own unique style. And in preparation for this, I I talked to a couple of folks, one of whom we both know well, Mike Cuneo. Mike was one of my earlier placements with Cohen & Steers. He started out as an internal wholesaler. He's now a very successful advisor running his own business out on Long Island. But I did chat with him, and I know that you stay in touch, and and Mike um, considers you a mentor, and I know that you remain uh, in touch. Um, but one of the funny things he told me was 
he, he told me that you gave him a shot to become an external wholesaler. And in doing so, he had to move out to the PacWest. He was covering, I think he was living in Seattle and covering the PacWest for Conan Sears at the time. And, um, you know, he, he relayed a story where he was in the territory for a couple of months, felt like he was doing a great job. He was having a nice, uh, a lot of like nice, friendly meetings. So he had you out as you did and you traveled with him and went on a series of meetings and they were all good. And Mike was received very well. And he was clearly, you know, uh, making some headway with, with his, with his meetings and, uh, and such. So he goes to drop you off at the airport after your visit. And one thing you said to him that stuck with him was, Hey, Mike, you're, you know, you're doing a good job. You're getting a lot of hugs, but you're not closing the business. And then you jumped out of the car and went home and that stuck with him. And it made him think like, huh, maybe I'm not doing everything I should be. And, you know, at that point, he realized that he needed to make an adjustment. And yeah, it was great to have these meetings and have this activity. But if it came to nothing in the end, really, what was he there for? And I think he at that point pivoted to, you know, looking at his messaging, was he really asking for the order, as they say, in sales, and uh, he made that adjustment. And ultimately, he had some success. And that was just one example of the things that he's learned from you as a management style. But, you know, I guess that, that willingness to be blunt with someone and not just, um, you know, not just give them platitudes around what they're doing well, but also point out, Hey, you know, there are things that you could be doing here that, that you need to make an adjustment about. Yeah. I mean, I think people, uh, who work for me know, like I, I, I've, I have high expectations, um, of myself as well as of them. So that sort of, you know, kind of sets the tone. I mean, one of the things, first of all, I played golf with Mike uh, a week ago. So that shows you that he invited me Mm -hmm. Um, and ended up, we had an advisor uh, who was from UBS. Um, He had won this thing at some kind of auction or charity. Um, And the guy got a hole in one, by the way, first time he ever had one. So it was an interesting story. But anyway, um, so yeah, I, I have mentored a lot of people. Um, if you go on my LinkedIn, actually, you know, I had a whole uh, thing of Fordham folks that I've mentored um, with a big picture and things like that. And so um, I think, again, you know, I think being um, candid with folks um, and again, results matter is really in our business, right? So I was going mm-hmm. my story a little bit, you know, um, while I was at Merrill Lynch, raised a lot of money and closed them funds. Um, then I went to Cohen and Steers and went from here to X. We, you know, we started at zero at Richard Bernstein Advisors. Rich is great. Um, you know, was highly successful at Merrill, but it never really managed money. Now he does. Now we manage that 16 billion. So we went from zero to to 16 and a half. Uh, I look at that and say that, that I've made an impact, you know, where I've gone. So if you're out in the field and you're a sales guy and you got a lot of friends, well, that's one thing. The question is, you know, how's the territory doing? How are you doing relative to your peers? Um, are you finding your secret sauce and the like, uh, at the time, obviously he wasn't, you know, he went on to do great things. He's doing really well now, but, uh, and again, if you don't have the, the conversation with them, um, then I'm not sure that they ultimately get it. The other thing I tell people it, at at work even now is if somebody, and this doesn't go to the wholesales, but it could actually, because most people can do this at a company. If I asked you to take out a piece of paper and write down, you know, 
if somebody quit tomorrow, came in the office and said, I'm leaving XYZ company, where would your name be on that list? Where would somebody else put you? And be like, and by the way, that could be an assistant. You know, that could be uh, the office manager was really critical. Um, doesn't mean you have to be the president or the, the, the best sales guy. I always wanted to be as high in that list as I can get myself. So what a driven to do that. Um, and if, you know, I think that most people at a company would probably be able to sort that list pretty accurately, you know what I mean? When across people. And if God forbid you're on the low end of that list across a bunch of people, then, then you haven't figured out how to make an impact. So be a student of the business. Um, you know, I'm going on here a little bit, but I, I tell my students and I tell people at work, I read the morning brew every day, which is just a, a real quick summary of, you know, what's going on in the world. I check out Bloomberg. I read Barron's on the weekend. Do I love reading Barron's? No, but I'm looking for something that might help the company in some way. So that's my mentality. How do I grow? And I think everybody should have that, uh, that same thinking. And then ultimately for the, for the salespeople, uh, and for the investment investment people, it's going to be performance for salespeople. It's going to be, okay, well, you know, are, are you showing results? I mean, I've been fortunate to be able to do that. Uh, and I think, um, that's the same expectation I have of the folks that work for me. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I also talked to Tim Kuhn about your management style and he, he relayed that idea of, you know, where do you sit on the list of folks in terms of importance within this firm and how can you move yourself further up that list? Um, he also said, you know, ideas are great, but how can you implement them? That's something that, you know, I, I think that you look for a practical solution, not just, Hey, you know, here's what I could do, but how, how are you actually going to execute on that? I would say on that note, John, just, I mean, uh, that one I learned at Merrill Lynch uh, a long time ago uh, from a guy and uh, it was ideas and implementation, right? And um, everybody's got ideas. I mean, sometimes I go to a board meeting, I'm on a few boards, Fordham and Elon, and, you know, there's people like, I mean, I'll just exaggerate. They're like, oh, let's, let's change the logo or something, which you know, I'm not saying they do, but some kind of, you know, an idea, but like, you need to be able to, you know, come up with something that's, you know, really can be implemented, executed, um, could be a territory thing if you're looking at your territories, um, things like that. And I think you can get lost in the idea side and it, it really has to be, you know, brought down to um, things that, you know, you can focus on and get a few done and then, you know, then they take care of themselves and go from there. Right. John, it's it's obviously very easy, not very easy, but it's easier as a sales manager to manage sales folks in this mark in this business when the markets are doing well. Your strategies are resonating with advisors and clients. You're raising money. Um, you're taking orders. What kind of a shift do you need to make, if anything, to deal with negative markets and and when times aren't good and keeping salespeople motivated and keeping them, you know, uh, doing what they need to be doing to continue to bring money into the business. Yeah. And I think, you know, motivation is really a, a big thing. And again, I think about uh, the, the folks we have in the field. We do a Friday call every week. Um, there is a lot of learning I think they can get from one another. And again, I think the notion is, you know, set expectations around them. But 
have fun too. I mean, like, you know, we're not here to like beat up everybody every day. Like we, we, there's a lot of humor in, in what we do, you know, uh, Tim's a good example. I mean, Tim's one of my, my best guys. Uh, Evan Zlotnick's also great, uh, in Florida. Both of them are always either one or two or two and one, uh, but they have different styles. I sort of said that. And, uh, I, I do think if I, had a look at myself, uh, and I mentioned it earlier too, but it, it is an intangible. I probably got it from my mom who, you know, is one of these people that uh, people will forever talk about and, and remember and know, and she's still around, but, um, you know, is understanding the personalities and, and how to motivate them in their own way. And anybody who tries to motivate somebody in the exact same style is not getting it. So Tim's you know, me and Tim have uh, fun conversations and Evan and I have conversations and they're, they're really um, very, very different. So I think um, that's really important um, as a manager to, to, to know that how to do that, if you will. Um, I always tell the folks uh, when we're having great performance, never mind the markets, it's really performance relative that you need to you know, make hay, you know, when the sun is shining. I mean, enjoy it. It's not going to be here the whole time. We're going to have tougher times um, and really run like heck when you can, because I do know that the cycle is going to change. It's clearly harder um, when things are tougher. I mean, I think uh, um, you got to maybe send out things that are uh, fun to them. Uh, we've done that in the past where if they're getting beat up, we'll, um, shoot them out a, a fun item with a note on it that says, you know, use this, mm-hmm. um, or whatever the case may be, but it, but it's, it's tougher. So, but what we do basically is try to talk about it, be frank about it, right? try to separate out, um, wallowing in sort of the difficulty and then controlling what you can control. Like I have a, there's a little Venn diagram we have, you know, you know, what you can control and what you should focus on. And it's just this little bit here. Right. Um, and, and that's all you can do. So activity, um, right. getting in front of people, how many meetings you're doing. I mean, it is a basic, uh, a basic thing when you come right down to our business. So, um, you can control that and that's what you have to do in, in both good times and bad. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's great advice for any, for any salesperson. Um, so John, now that you're, you're, uh, you've reached a lot of success. I know that you've been giving back. Um, you mentioned earlier about your work at Fordham. How did you end up, um, you know, as an adjunct and teaching this ground floor, uh, ground floor course for the number of years that you have been? So I said my line, right? Learn, earn, return, you know, which I use when I'm, that charities, uh, trying to get people to give money. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I got on the board at Fordham, um, way back when somebody had reached out. I hadn't quite frankly been in crazy touch with them. Um, but, and that eventually led me to do a non-credit class, uh, which became kind of career advice and, and giving and things like that. And then the ground floor is an introduction to business class at Fordham. And every freshman has to take it at the Gabelli School of Business. I'm up at the Rose Hill campus. Mm-hmm. And it's basically the basics of marketing and finance and sales. So it's kind of up my alley. It's kind of what we talked about today. Are you client-facing? Are you analytical? Right. You know, one of the things 
in my first class, I asked them to write down for me in a paragraph, if you were going to open up a lemonade stand in the Bronx Mm -hmm. um, and you had two others, so there's three of you, I want to know whether you would make the lemonade. Let's say the quality (laughs) of the lemonade was important. I want to know whether you'd sell it or, or, or collect the money, Mm. make it, you know, um, sell it or bring in the money. And the point obviously is to get them to start to think about the client facing versus analytical. Do they want to be behind the scenes or they want to be the engineer? I don't think like that. So it's been rewarding. I've been, I think this is my 10th year, um, you know, doing it. I was, you know, like when I go back, you can go on rate my professor. You can see what they say about you and stuff. Um, but I, I, I kind of now, um, it's been really rewarding. I mean, it's great to give back, but also, um, going back to that LinkedIn post and there were, I don't know how many people, 20 or 25, which was really wasn't everybody. And some of those were my TAs and just people that I, that get, it asked me for advice, you know, could be on negotiating to get a job, could be on what they should do, you know, things like that. So it's allowed me to, um, to do a lot of the things that I think, um, I can help with. And if I've gotten anything out of what we do, John, um, helping people, mm-hmm. I tell people this all the time too, you know, go out and try to help others. You know, there was a university of Texas, uh, commencement speech where the guy, uh, the Admiral, um, you can look it up, you know, goes through like if, you know, you help five people and they help five right. and those people, I mean, they, and that's kind of the way I feel about what I do with, uh, anyone who really comes to me, uh, whether it's, you know, people that have worked for me or, or whatever, but certainly these students, if, you know, you live on in helping them and guiding them. And that is about as rewarding as it gets watching them succeed. And I feel that way about the people that work for me. One of the, the joys I get is watching them, you know, listen, adjust, change and, and go on to great things. And I think, um, you know, it's it's rewarding both at the company, but also certainly at the student level. Because in that post, I know there were people at BlackRock and Deloitte and KKR, and I mean, it was it was insane. And mm-hmm. he is none of them that I talked to when I met them had any idea what they wanted to do. So, right. yeah, right. That's that's great. John, aside from your work in education, I know you're not only involved in Fordham's uh, School of Business, but you're also involved in Elon's, uh, another one of your sons attended Elon, and you're involved in in, in their uh, business school as well. Um, any other philanthropic pursuits? I know your your wife's business, your wife's uh, nonprofit, uh, Hearts to Homes, is very close to your heart. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, my wife runs a charity. She's the CEO. It's called Hearts to Homes. It's for um, folks aging out of foster care. So when you age out of foster care, and foster care, if you know anything about it, is not you know, a, a great, great uh, situation for, for many people. But then when you're 21 in New York City or Westchester or, or Long Island, you actually age out. Now you have no, um, you know, financial uh, backing. And so she created this charity, um, I don't know, five to six years ago or so. And basically it supplies basic items to folks aging out of foster care. And, um, you know, the thing I tell people is like, when you, you brought your daughter to college, she went to Elon too. I bring, you bring your kids to college. I mean, there's, 
there's two Keurig machines and there's a TV that's huge and there's there's just stuff everywhere and like every parent is buying them everything. You know what? Not everybody has that, and in particular these kids. So sure. if you want to go on to heartstones.org, you can buy them cutlery, you can buy them a vacuum, you can buy them a rug. And I think they've they've helped uh, close to 500 uh, folks uh, already and they're just doing a great job. So, you know, again, it's nice. Um, I mentioned somewhere along the line, I was a money driven guy, uh, Mm -hmm. been able to do well. And it's nice to be able to take that and, and obviously, uh, give to charity, give back, teach it for them, you know, things like that. So, uh, it's a great organization. So thanks for bringing it up. Yeah, and uh, I've been to a couple of uh, the events your wife has hosted, and, and met some of the folks that have benefited from uh, from Hearts to Homes and and the program you run that they run. So it's it's an awesome uh, cause, absolutely. Thank you. Well, thank you, John. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for being generous with your advice and with your experience. And uh, I think our, our listeners are going our listeners are going to be um, you know very much benefit from uh, what you had to say today. Yeah, John, thank you for the time. Hopefully some of this will be, will resonate with folks. Um, again, I think, you know, you yourself just listening to some of the things you're talking about, whether it's your dad, <clears throat> your first job, obviously your experiences. I hope when people call you and uh, you're giving, you know, them advice, I mean, they need to realize that you've probably placed a couple of hundred people at this point. I don't really know. Mm-hmm. Sure. So you've been through everything. And so yeah. one John Keevy says, you know, you might want to write a thank you. But, um, it probably has some backing. But more importantly, yeah. um, you know, again, I think what I value too, maybe to sum up, would be um, relationships, really, right? That's Absolutely. what it comes down to. And that's one of the reasons I try to help people is then you you establish a relationship, helping you or whatever it is. And 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 that's the beauty, I think, of, the, of our business too. And so it's been it's been great working together and, uh, you know, I consider you a great partner, a friend, and I, I, I do thank you for everything you've done to, to help, you know, the firms that I'm at and me succeed. So thank you for that. Thank you, John. And yes, as I said earlier, you've been a great partner and friend to me and very generous and, uh, always appreciative of the work that, that we do. So thank you so much for that. Um, thank you, John. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for the time today. Right. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Game Changers. I really enjoyed John's discussion of his early years and his path to financial services, as it wasn't one that had a clear path, but rather one where he went into a big firm like Merrill Lynch, and through the combination of hard work and building relationships, he was able to find out what he was good at and where he belonged. I think it's a reminder to young people that you don't have to have your entire career mapped out ahead of time. Also, there are times when you need to take chances and sometimes pursue the path less traveled career-wise. Some of the things that stand out for me in my conversation with John are to always be cognizant of the value that you're bringing to the organization you work for and to strive to increase it. Another is to constantly strive to stay current and educated in your field. As a leader, offering critical feedback where where needed to give people a chance to improve. And finally, look for opportunities to give back, especially to the generation coming up behind you. If you've enjoyed this content, I'd love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share this episode with friends. If you have any feedback, ideas, or if you'd be interested in being a guest yourself, I'd love to hear from you. I can be reached on LinkedIn, or you can reach me via email at jkeevy at careerconnections.us. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon in our next episode of Game Changers.